Welcome to the Riverside Church Podcast. We hope today's message encourages you and strengthens your walk with God. Enjoy the message. Who has enjoyed this fall semester that we've been getting into called I Am a Child of God? Come on, is it? Am I the only one? It's been so good. Some people have said that they feel like they're going back to college right now or going to Bible college because of the resources and the teachings and everything, which is awesome because this is called to be a center of education, of really discipleship, where we disciple. And I like to say like this, that the church isn't a place where we go to escape the world. It's a place where we prepare to go out into the world, amen. So feel free to follow along, write notes. But during the first portion of this semester, we talked about our inheritance that we have as children of God. We went through the different covenants. And now we're talking about our identity. Can somebody say identity? The identity that we have as children of God. And last week, Pastor Bobby kicked things off with a great message talking about how we are born to dominate. Just like whenever God created Adam, he said, take dominion, subdue the earth. But who knows, he forfeited that authority and power that he had at the beginning. But who's thankful for Jesus Christ, the second Adam, oh, come on, that stepped in, took dominion, and he's given us the keys of the kingdom. Now we have dominion in our DNA through the blood of Jesus. Now today we're gonna be talking about this, how we are born to win souls. Come on, does anybody believe that today? That you were born, that you were created, that you were, you were born to, 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 as a child of God to know Christ, to make him known, in other words. To spread the gospel, to spread the good news, to point people to him. And we're actually gonna be going back to the story of Noah, referencing that some as well. But we're going to read the summary that we find in the syllabus first where it says this, entering into Noah's ark, and this is the second week in the syllabus, it says this, entering into Noah's ark was the only way to be saved from the devastating flood. The grace Noah received caused him to righteously respond by preparing a vessel for man and beast to escape the judgment of God, Hebrews eleven seven. Like Noah, we should be praying and preparing our family to enter into the church of the living God, which is like Noah's ark, so they may be saved. Jesus Jesus warned us that Noah's story has everything to do with our salvation before he comes again. Matthew 24, verse 37 to 39, we're we're actually fixing to read that portion of scripture as well. Peter the apostle explains how few will be saved. This should give us compassion to reach our unsaved family and friends with the good news of the salvation in Christ. If you don't mind, can you stand in honor of reading of God's word? And if you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 24, or you can turn your attention to the screen. Matthew chapter 24, verse 36 to 39. Here at Riverside Church, we believe that the word of God is true, that the word of God can be trusted, that the word of God is the retelling of history, um, that even in the Old Testament stories that we find with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, that these weren't fables or fictions or fairy tales, but did you know that even in the New Testament, Jesus a number of, time, number of times repre- references different characters that we find in the, New, in the Old Testament, and we're fixing to read a portion right now where, where, where Jesus references the days of Noah, and he correlates that to the second coming, his second coming, and also the end time. It says this in Matthew 24, verse 36 through 39. One more time, anybody ready for the word today? Awesome. I like to tell people, if nothing else I say is good, this will be good because it's God's word. 
But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Oh, who in here knows that Jesus is coming back one day? That it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Like a thief in the night, any moment, what are we called to do in the meantime as a church? Let me tell you what we're called to do in the meantime. We're not called to just sit on our hands, act complacent and casual and play church. No, we weren't called to, to play church and play religion. We were called to be the church, to be the body of Christ, to be the hands and feet of Jesus, and bring as many people on board as possible for the kingdom of God. Amen? Come on, anybody ready to win souls for Jesus today? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, have your way today. Thank you for your word. Ha. Thank you, Lord, for your anointing. You are so good. It's all about you, Lord. Have your way. Let your church be edified and equipped to do the work of ministry, Lord. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen, amen, amen. Go ahead and give Jesus some praise in this place on your way back to your seat. God bless you. You may be seated. If there's one thing I think that we can all agree on, it's the fact that we live in a broken, jacked up, messed up, tore up from the floor up, like they would say, world. Doesn't it seem like every week or every other week, y'all, there's just another tragic headline where something devastating has taken place that, 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 that breaks your heart. And sometimes we got to be careful because sometimes we get so inundated with all the tragedy that we become numb and we lose our compassion and the empathy that we're called to have. For example, with all the chaos and confusion and destruction and death and turmoil taking place on the other side of the world, it should break our heart to see all these different things taking place in innocent lives that have been taken and lost. And we as a church, we are praying for Israel. We are praying for the people in the conflict that's taking place in the Middle East as well. And we can never lose the compassion that we have. We can't ration our compassion, in other words, when it comes to God's heart to reach out and pray for other people. Because as believers... We cannot become blind or ignorant to the darkness in this world. But, at the, but on the other hand, let me tell you, we can't become so obsessed and overwhelmed by it that we don't fulfill our mission and mandate as the church to be the salt and light of this world. That's part of our responsibility as the church to be the salt and the light, to add flavor to bring healing, 
and to point people to Jesus. Amen? So I was having a conversation with somebody in our church a couple months ago, and they have a number of younger children. I asked them what their greatest concern was as a parent. And they responded by saying, honestly, it's the state of the world that we live in today and what it could potentially be like when my children are my age one day. Come on, has anybody ever thought that before? It looks like, what is it going to be like whenever they are my age? And I completely understood where they were coming from. And the reality is, us as Christians, we have to learn to, to live in the balance and live in the tension of being aware of the state of this world, while at the same time knowing that we have an eternal hope and we have to have an eternal perspective. That's why the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19, he said that if our hope in Christ is in this world alone, we are of all men most miserable. In other words, we can't get so caught up with, this, with just this temporal life that we forget about the eternal life that we have secured in Jesus. Amen? In other words, let me tell you today, remind you today, that heaven is real, hell is real, eternity is too long to be wrong, this life is short, it's a vapor, here one day, gone the next, and one day we will meet Jesus face to face, whether in this life when he comes back, or in the life to come. But the truth of the matter is, is this, is that wickedness and evil and everything that we see in this world, it's nothing new. It's been taking place for thousands of years since humanity walked the earth and turned away from God. When Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, literally their kids killed one another. Second generation, just imagine that for a second. It didn't take 20, 30, right afterward. These things are nothing new. And especially, think about this for a second, especially in the days of Noah. It was so evil and so wicked, and it got so bad that, get this, it says this in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 through 6 and 11. It says, then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry, get this, that he made man on earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of God. The earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. Can somebody say violence? I didn't plan on sharing this, but as I was studying and preparing, I actually found out that this word right here, violence in the Hebrew, is literally translated in the Hebrew to the word Hamas. So just think about for a second, that level of violence and evil and corruption and wickedness taking place at a worldwide scale throughout all of humanity. And then that's when God said, I'm stepping in and doing something about it. See, sometimes people, they doubt the existence of God. And one of the biggest arguments is this, is that 
if there is a God and if he's so good and if he's so great, why doesn't he step in when there's evil? This is a verse in the Bible, a story in scripture, when God does just that. He steps in and he does something about it. And I know we love to talk about and sing about and think about the love of God, right? But let me tell you something real quick. That just as equal to the love of God is also the wrath of God. There is such thing as the wrath of God. Yes, there is the love of God, but there's also the wrath of God. In fact, I'll go as far to say it like this, that you can't have true love apart from wrath. You can't have true love. Why? For example, think about this. If you truly love something and you truly love someone, wouldn't you want there to be justice and judgment brought against anything that would try to defile and abuse and corrupt and destroy it? Can I tell you? So it is with God when it comes to sin. God hates sin. He hates what it has done to humanity. He hates what sin has done to his creation. And the wrath of God is real. So God decided, I'm sending a flood into the earth. Just think about that for a second. But then the scripture says, because things got so bad in the days of Noah, that God decided, I'm sending a flood. But then the scripture also says that there was a man by the name of Noah that found grace in the eyes of God. And in the same way, we need to thank God for his grace in our lives as well. And you need to understand this, that the reason that we have the grace of God active in our lives is because one day the wrath and judgment of God was poured out on Christ when he was on Calvary. And because the judgment of God came, guess what? We get to experience his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and his kindness. Oh, come on. Is anybody thankful for the grace of God in this place? So God decided to flood the earth. However, he had a plan to preserve humanity and the animals within it. Oh, come on. Who's thankful that God has a plan? That God doesn't just make things up as he goes. He's like, you know, I feel like, no, God has a plan. He knows the end from the beginning. He, he knows it all. And he has a plan of redemption. He has a plan of restoration. And he had a plan. And guess what his plan was? Noah, build a boat. A big boat, fit all the animals, two of every kind. Put your family in there as well. We actually see God giving instruction to Noah on how to build it in Genesis chapter 6, verse 13 through 20, to build the ark. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. It's width 50 cubits. And it's height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower second and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. 
but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. I want you to visualize just just for a second. I want you to visualize and imagine this monumental task that Noah had to construct and build this ark. The scripture says that it was 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. And now what a cubit was is a cubit was this. A cubit was an ancient measuring method that would go from the end of your elbow to the end of your fingers. That was considered one cubit. Which, you get this, would have made the ark around 510 feet long and 51 feet tall and 85 feet wide wide. And this, so this was a massive structure, and theologians and scholars have estimated that it took Noah anywhere between 55 to 75 years to construct it and build it. And personally, I don't think he did it by himself. Why? Because the scripture says that him and his family of eight came on board. And I know what it's like when my dad has a big project coming up. Hey, I'm not building this ark. You, you want to be safe. You got to build the ark too, son. Can you imagine how like that approach was for Noah to tell his family, you won't believe what God just told us to do. He t- for what? How big? How long? How wide? They built the ark. They came together. See, Noah received the prophetic word, but they still had to do the prophetic work. Oh, come on, somebody. Some of us are waiting for God just to drop things in our laps and drop Drop things, but sometimes he'll hand us a hammer. Oh, yeah? And he'll say, all right, I'll do my part. Floodwaters are coming. I'm just giving you a heads up out of just being nice. But I want you to build the ark. Here's how you do it. Build it. And and they built the ark. Can you imagine even just think about it? It doesn't say it in Scripture, but I'm sure that even to other people, that this family seemed crazy. It's like, what has Noah and his family been doing for over the 50 years? What are they building over there for an event that hadn't even taken place yet? There wasn't even signs. See, it's believed, too, that water just came from the ground. It didn't come from the sky at the time. It wasn't until the flood. That's, that's what some people believe and some theologians. So they were preparing and building and blood, sweat, and tears went into building this ark. Secondly, I want you to think about this and visualize this. Imagine... All the animals, just for a second, visualize and imagine the mass amount of animals that came from all, of the, all over the earth to fill and to fit in this ark. It's, it's estimated that there were over 6,700 animals that filled the ark, which, which if you do the calculations with the dimensions, they say it's possible. I believe they even have a whole, whole museum in Kentucky where they built nearly a life-size replica of the ark that you can walk through and everything like that. But they have this right here. And they, can you just imagine, just for a second, all the animals walking and approaching and going in. Could you imagine living on this boat, 6,700 animals? Noah and his family essentially lived in a zoo. 
You ever seen the movie We Bought a Zoo? I don't know if it's a good or bad, but I think I heard of it before, right? They were living in a zoo. They were living in a zoo, and there was a storm for 40 days and 40 nights, and then they even stayed in there longer until dry land appeared, and they went out of it. Can you just imagine the smells, <laughs> the sounds? Y'all, this was before modern plumbing. This was before AC. I'm sure there were moments in that ark where Noah turned around to his family and said, we're never talking about this again. Can you imagine maybe how tight some spaces were? Just because if who, who in here believes the Bible is true? The word of God is true, right? We got to think about this. This that we believe this actually happened. The ark was filled with animals. So imagine all that, because for me and my wife, y'all, we one puppy's enough. I can't imagine taking care of 6,700 animals. This is wild. And lastly, I want you to imagine, think about this. I want you to imagine the feeling as if you're there right now. I want you to imagine the feeling of being within the ark in the midst of the flood, in the midst of the storm, and the winds and waves that are rocking and battering the boat. You're tossing and turning. Dramamine has not been invented yet. They don't have those bands that go put pressure on your wrist or nothing like that. And the only thing that's standing between you and all this water and drowning is just some wood. See, that's why I believe personally, I believe that, that, that yeah, knowing them did their part, but that God had a supernatural part to play, to hold and keep this ark together throughout all this time. Think about that for a second. And out of everything and anything that God could have used to preserve and save humanity, you know what he used? He used this ark. He used this boat to save and preserve humanity before the flood came. So going back, we see God giving no instruction, but the ark, they worked their butt off. They built the ark. And then Jesus said in Matthew 24 in the opening scripture that we read that it wasn't until Noah and his family, maybe they shut the door too, when they entered into the ark, that that's when the flood waters came. And people were taken off guard. And Jesus said it like this, so shall it be when I return again. In fact, Jesus said it like this. He said that the people on the earth were eating, drinking, getting married, going through life. And all of a sudden, the flood came and it was too late. Isn't it interesting how Jesus correlated his second coming to the flood that took place in Noah's day, which begs the question, what is God using today? Because in Jesus' day, they, even after he rose, they, they thought Jesus was coming back in their lifetime, the disciples. They said, we are in the last days. You know what that means? That means we're in the latter part of the last days. But no man knows the day or the hour. I don't care who you follow, who you listen to. I know there's signs of the times and all that stuff. But let me tell you something real quick. What, and I ask you, what is God using right now to save and deliver and preserve? What vessel is God using right now in this world as a harbor of safety and protection until he comes back? Let me tell you in the form of the first point. You ready? Write this down. That the church is the ark of the world. The church, I'm going to say it until you get it. The church, you are the ark of the world. In other words, think about this for a second. 
Just like how God used the ark as an instrument to bring salvation to Noah and his family, God is using the church of Jesus Christ as the vessel, as the instrument, as the container, as the body to save and deliver his people today. And God anointed and graced Noah to bring as many living things as he could, like the animals and his, right, and his family in particular, into the ark. And can I tell you that God has graced us and anointed us as the body of Christ to fill the ark, to fill the church with as many people as possible until he returns or we pass away from this world. And interestingly enough, there's a number of parallels, y'all, between the ark and the church. Number of parallels. Think about this for a second. For starters, God gave specific instructions that there was only to be one door to enter into the ark. And the door would be on the side. And in a similar way, can I tell you, the way, the only way that we can be a part of this thing the only way that we can truly become a part of the body of Christ and enter into the kingdom of God is through Jesus Christ who calls himself in John chapter 10. He said, I am the door. Get this, because right now, there's false doctrine and false belief systems right now and being from people saying, universally saying, oh, there's many ways to heaven. There's many ways to God. You do your thing. When Jesus stepped in, right, he said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. There is no other option. There is no other alternative. There is no other way to heaven. See, that may step on some people's toes because they get mad. God, there's only one way. You know what we need to do as a church? We don't need to get mad that there's only one way. We need to celebrate and thank God that there is at least one way. Oh, come on. And he is good. He is great. He is God. He stepped in, took flesh and bone. He, he laid down his life on the cross to establish the church. He defeated death, hell, and the grave. His name is Jesus. Oh, come on. Who's thankful that Jesus is the way? John chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus says this of himself. He said to them again, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Can somebody say this with me? Somebody say, Jesus is the door, and we are the sheep. Just in case anybody needed to be humble today, that's a great reminder right there. Jesus is the door, we are the sheep. And can I tell you that in the same way, just like how the animals in Noah and his family were safe and secure, as long as they were apart and within the ark, so it is for us, y'all, as we are a part, we place our faith in Jesus, and we are a part of the body, the church of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you something else, too, real quick. That doesn't mean, in other words, the church is a safe place. This is one of the safest places you can be, is being the church. It's not really just a building, I think I said it earlier, but it's a people. The church isn't an organization. It's an organism. Living and breathing. When we come together, we become a holy habitation. We, you are the church. But let me tell you something, too, that that doesn't mean that you will be exempt from storms and from trials and tribulation and testing. In fact, Jesus almost guaranteed it. He guaranteed you will face tribulation. 
You will face trials. It's not just going to be all sunshine and rainbows. Yeah, you know, weeping may endure the night, but joy comes in the morning. You know, God plays the rain. We're, in other words, there may be storm. We may experience tossing and turning like the ark did, but who knows that there is light on the other side. Oh, come on. We have hope in Jesus. God is going to pull us through. God, God is going to keep us afloat. See, and when the wicked, oh, man. When the wicked are drowning, guess what? We as the church, as the saints, are going to be able to sail through the storm. Why? Because we know where our help comes from. Our help comes from the Lord. Oh, come on, somebody. We're going to experience storms. We may experience testing. See, God never promised that we wouldn't have experienced storms. But you know what he did promise? He promised that he would be present in the middle of the storm. The same God that spoke a word and calmed the winds and the waves, that same God lives on the inside of you. You can have peace. You can have assurance. You can trust in God and know that God, if he brought you to it, oh, come on, he'll bring you through it. He'll take care of you. God's got us. We're on the winning side. And I also think about this, too, another correlation I think of for the church and the ark. Like we said earlier, who knows? I don't know. Probably wasn't the most comfortable trip at times for Noah and his family with the animals, with the smells, with the stench, with the sounds and the space and everything. But who knows? Man, I'll take a ticket on the ark than being on the outside of the ark any day. Much better to be in the ark than outside the ark. And can we just be honest with each other today? Let's be honest, okay? I think... The truth is that there's going to be times even in the church, oh, hello, where we may not prefer at times to be even sitting next to the, everybody just keep your eyes forward right now. There may be times in the church where you may not prefer to be sitting next to the person that you're sitting next to. Somebody may rub you the wrong way. You may get aggravated and agitated and somebody may get on your last nerve. Or, 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 or maybe, maybe in the past for you, maybe... Maybe you've experienced church hurt before. Let's be honest. It's a real thing. You've experienced church hurt. And it, 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 isn't it interesting, the longer that you're in the church, the more you notice all the imperfections of other people. And, and, and you begin to smell the stench of people around you, maybe metaphorically and literally. Everybody take a shower before you come to church. You know, just, I, I, I don't know. But here's what I do know. Let me remind you today that none of us are perfect. Oh, come on. We've all contributed to the stench at one point or another, intentionally, unintentionally. Oh, come on. And at the end of the day, the stench on the inside is far better than the storm that's raging on the outside. I know, I know there's no perfect church. No perfect church. If you found the perfect church, don't join it. You're going to mess it up. The only perfect church is Jesus in a building by himself. Let me, let me tell you that right now, okay? We're imperfect people serving a perfect God. That's the, oh, man, somebody. Is this making sense to somebody today? What am I trying to say? Don't give up on God and don't abandon ship just because you get uncomfortable and you get offended or you may get hurt. Stay the course. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter, the finisher of your faith. Let's not break each other down. Let's build each other up, y'all. Let's stop complaining 
about all the problems, and let's choose to love, let's choose to forgive, let's choose to go, come on, let's choose to celebrate the fact that we're stronger, together, united, that you are on the way to heaven. I said, let me me say that one more time. I said, we are on the way to heaven, together, as the body of Christ. The scripture says that we are just pilgrims passing through. Oh, man, don't get so comfortable. Don't get so complacent. Life is just a vapor. Here one day, gone the next, and we can't take anything else with us, but guess who you're going to take with you? The person behind you, beside you, in front of you. We're going together. Somebody say, I am the church. I am the church. Jesus is coming back for his church. Jesus is coming back for his bride. We have a responsibility. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 through 6 says it like this. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit. This is speaking to the church in Ephesus, but it's relevant to us. Grab a hold of this. I'm going to read it one more time. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit. In other words, it's going to take some hard work. It may take some time. Just like Noah and his family came together and they made something happen. Let me tell you, there's going to be moments like that. Binding yourselves together with peace for there is, get this, one body and one spirit. Just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. In other words, we're heading to the same place. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and all and living through all. In, 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 in other words, get this, we each individually have a responsibility to make peace and to show love to one another as believers, a part of the body of Christ. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Many people want unity, but you know where unity starts? You. Unity starts with you. A decision I'm going to choose to love. I'm going to choose to forgive. I'm going to choose peace. I'm going to choose. Why? Because Jesus even said that people will know that you're my disciples by the what? By the love that you have for one another. Why is the church fighting against one another whenever we should be fighting for one another? Oh, come on, somebody. We have to allow, listen, every one of us, we need to allow the Holy Spirit to transform us, that Christ may be formed in us, to renew us and to bind us together as one. One faith. You know, I think that's also a picture of water baptism too, that whenever we are water baptized, you know, it's a representation of us also being baptized in the body of Christ. First Peter chapter 3, verse 20. I believe he references how even the ark the ark had to go through a water. They had to go through the water. And that was a picture of baptism for us even as the church. In other words, just like the ark had to go through the water, when we go through the waters of baptism, God begins to remove and wash away the stench of the past. And guess what happens? When you get water baptized, it's supposed to be at a church around other believers in Christ. And when you come out of the water, you look around and you say to yourself and you know in your heart, I'm not by myself, but I have a family. I have brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not called to do this life on my own. We, see, that's why we make space here at Riverside Church. 
Noah's Ark had many rooms. We got many units right now. We're going to get in that next building in Jesus' name sooner. We need more space. But we have the different ministries, youth, kids, small groups. See, some of us, we're waiting for someone to force us. You got to make a decision. You want to make friends? Show yourself friendly. Sign up for a crew. Don't say to yourself, oh, I got hurt in the last church. Let me tell you something. There's always going to be, oh, man, should I stop? Can I keep on going or should I stop right now? Don't let that hold you back. We are stronger. Iron sharpens iron. There is a place for you. You aren't called to do life alone. God wants you to partner with other people. Somebody say, we have a family. We, ha- we are a family. So what are we called and commissioned to do as the church in the meantime? Let me go back. Let me tell you what we're not called to do. We are not called to get so casual and complacent and treat the church like a cruise ship. Where we just kick back and relax. See, that's how some churches act like. I pray that's not said at Riverside Church where we just focus on ourselves. We, we want everybody to serve us. Oh, come on. We're wanting God to wait on us. When we're called to wait on him, I think of a waiter, right, serving. God, what do you want me to do? I'm not just going to stand here with my hands crossed and just wait till you come back and, and not do anything. No, that's not what we're called to do. It, we're not supposed to act lazy and complacent and kick back. You know what the church is supposed to be like? Not like a cruise ship. It's supposed to look more like a rescue ship, y'all. Come on, like the Coast Guard, they come in. They say, come on, we have a responsibility to share the gospel, to, 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 to be an ambassador for Christ, to point people to Jesus. Why? Because we want to bring as many people on board as possible before he returns or before we pass away. See, I, th- I think it's interesting. I was thinking about this earlier this week. I find it interesting how the first of the disciples that Jesus called the first of the 12, whenever he called them, where were they at? The scripture says that they were in a boat. They were fishermen. And that's when Jesus says, follow me. And he tells them this. He said, you're fishermen. But now I'm going to teach you how to become fishers of men. Oh, come on, somebody. Isn't Jesus genius? I'm going to teach you how to become fishers of men. In other words, what are we commissioned to do as the church? We are commissioned to win souls. We are commissioned to catch souls. We are commissioned to, to what, go into what all nations make disciples and what? Baptize them. Water. We're the ark. We're the body of Christ. Let's get people on board. Let's reach out to people. Let's show the love of Jesus. Let's share the gospel. You don't need a microphone. See, you know, biblically speaking, you are the minister, the scripture says, that when we gather together as oversight and even pastors, that we are here to equip you as the ministers and the saints to go out and do the work of God. Here's the second point I want to give you. It's this. We are commissioned to catch souls for Christ. We are commissioned to catch souls for Christ. How many people in here like fishing? Okay, we got some fishermen in the place. Okay. Whenever I was younger, y'all, I was obsessed with fishing, okay? Like, whenever I was really little, I was obsessed. I had 
fishing stuff all in my room, and I would go to my dad all the time, and I'd say, Dad, but here's how I would pronounce it. I didn't pronounce it as fishing. I pronounced it as wishing. I said, Dad, can we go wishing? Can we go wishing, please? And my uncle heard me say it, and he got me a sign that hung up in my room that says this, let's go wishing. But here's the thing for me. I, I'm just going to be honest. I am not a good fisherman. <laughs> I don't care what kind of bait, what kind of rod, what kind of reel, what kind of lure. Maybe it's because I talk too fast and too much and too loud. I don't know. I've never been a good fisherman. I, I, I have. I don't know. Because many times when we think of fishing, what do we think of? We think of the rod. We think of the lure. We think of getting the right bait to, to catch a, a specific fish. Come on, you ever caught a fish before? He's like, I don't want that fish. And we throw it out, right? And we get picky, right? Think about this for a second. That in Jesus' day, they didn't fish really like how we fish today. They didn't, they didn't fish really with rods and rolls as fishermen for them. You know what they fished with? Nets. And here's the thing about nets. Who knows? Nets don't discriminate. Nets, nets don't pick and choose. If there's a if there's a soda can in there, it's getting the soda can. It's getting every type of fish, every type of, it, it, just, it just goes through. Why? Because whatever comes to the net will be caught by the net. Oh, come on. You mean tell you how Jesus goes fishing? Jesus goes fishing with nets. He said, come on to me, all those who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, the problem with the church of Jesus Christ today, I believe, at times is that we get really picky and we fish with we fish with rods and reels and they get particular bait to catch a specific oh come on because some people think that God can only save a specific people group a specific class, a specific demographic. So some churches cater specifically to those specific things, and then they look in other people and say, God can't save them. God can't do this. They're too messed up. They're too dirty. But when you go fishing with Jesus, guess what? He hauls in the red, yellow, black, white, polka dot, rich, poor, clean, unclean. He said, come unto me, all those who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He fishes with nets. That's what we got to believe as the church. We do our part. God will do his part. <laughs> See, this was challenging, y'all, though, for the disciples to hear. Just even what I said right there, if I were to preach that, because sometimes, let me tell you something. The, the disciples, they had a lot of maturing and growing up to do. Because when Jesus stepped in, Oh, man, they had their own ideals and expectations of, of what Jesus would do and how, who he would save. Oh, yeah. The disciples, they almost tried to filter who Jesus could save, and they would try to direct Jesus to different places. That's why they were so surprised when Jesus ministered to the Samaritan woman at the well. Like, what is he doing talking to Samaritan woman? Why would you waste your time? She's not even fully Jewish. See, for the disciples... Oh, man, the disciples were picky, especially Peter. The same Peter that God said, that Jesus said, in your name shall be Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. Y'all, he, 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 he had some prejudices of his own. Because being Jewish, anybody who wasn't Jewish was considered a Gentile. And they saw the Gentiles as unclean, dirty, filthy, unworthy people. 
But what did Jesus tell the disciples before he left? He commissioned them. It wasn't a suggestion. It was a commission. He said, I want you to go to Jerusalem, Judea, and to where? All the ends of the earth. And be my witnesses of what you've seen and what you've heard. And I'll anoint you. And I'm going to use you. But Peter, man, he had a hard time, especially with the Gentiles. And that's what we find in Acts chapter 10. Because just in Acts chapter 10, we're about to read it. We find Peter where God's dealing with him to minister to a Gentile man by the name of Cornelius and his household. So right here, God gives Peter a vision. And I want you to see this just for a second. It says, and worship team, y'all go ahead and come up. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. While the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles. It's almost like he's describing the ark right here, the animals, as well as reptiles and birds, all kinds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Imagine him speaking like in a British accent right here. Surely not, Lord. I have never put my lips on anything impure or unclean. Lord, forgive me. See, because to the Jews, they were so religious and legalistic, and Pharisees even more so. But even the disciples... Even the disciples, God had to teach them and reteach them and remind them. He's, For God so loved the what? World. They didn't want to even associate with Gentiles because they were considered unclean. They wouldn't even eat clean, unclean animals. There were unclean things. There was all these rules and laws. And the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. What was God trying to reveal and show Peter in this moment? You know what God was doing? He was preparing Peter to preach and reach and minister and to share the gospel with the Gentile people who, guess what, he considered unclean. And God used the appetite of a hungry fisherman to show him that just like he was called to consume and eat of the clean and unclean animals, so would the body of Christ, the church, be comprised of both Jew and Gentile. What he considered clean and unclean, what was the ark made of? All the animals, clean and unclean animals came in. And Peter finally grabbed a hold of this truth. He grabbed a hold of it. In other words, it wouldn't be your ethnicity. It wouldn't be your heritage. It wouldn't be your pedigree. It wouldn't be how smart you are and how good you look and all these different things that would make you clean. It would be only by the blood of Jesus Christ that would cleanse us and make us into a new creation. 
And he finally grabbed a hold of that truth and God used him in a mighty way. But he had it backwards at first, you know that? Peter should have known as a fisherman. Think about this for a second. He should have known because he had it backwards because he thought that someone had to get cleaned up before they can get caught by God. That they had to meet his qualifications and his standards and look like him and talk like him and act like him in order for God to do a work in his life. But who knows when you go fishing? What do you do after you catch the fish? You clean the fish. You can't clean it and catch it. The fish is caught and then it's clean. And therefore, I think lies some of the problem in the church when it comes to us evangelizing and being open to different people. Why? Because we think, and maybe for you personally, you've thought to yourself, God, I can't talk to you. I can't pray to you. Why? Because I feel dirty. Not realizing that the only way we can get cleaned up is by first approaching and humbling ourselves before him. So let me, this is going to lift a weight off your shoulders when you evangelize and when you share the gospel because some of us think, okay, God, whew, I got to carry this person from the end to the beginning. I need to make sure they dress in this way. I need to make sure they don't say these words. I need, I need to make sure they get cleaned up and that and, and whatever else like that. And we do that before, after, but let me tell you something real quick. Here's a principle. Come on, has anybody ever caught and released a fish before? Catch and release, they call it. One of the best things that you can do is as God uses you to catch and win a soul, you release them to God. And you allow God to do the cleaning. You allow the Holy Spirit to do the changing. You allow, why? Because we understand every one of us. Let me tell you, you may look great this Sunday morning, but we were all once dead in our sin. We were all, all once dead just dirty and filthy in the darkness, messed up, tore up from the floor up. But thank God one day he brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are witnesses. And if God could do it for you, God can do it for other people. Don't put limitations on God. We are the church. We are the ark. Let's get as many people. When's the last time that you shared the gospel? When's the last time that you prayed, God, use me to, to, to lead somebody to you? When's the last time that we were ever intentional? We had a fire in our spirit saying, God, my family, my children, it may seem like all hope is lost. It may feel like they're far too gone, but it's not over till God says it's over. Because I, you may feel the urgency because there is an urgency. There is an urgency. Oh, Caleb, you know, whatever. There is. What if we lived every day like it was our last day to live for the Lord? What if we knew we wouldn't be here tomorrow? How would we live our life for our family, for our children, for our community and our church? We got to make sure we're ready. We got to make sure we do our best to make sure our house is ready. The people around, because here's the reality. Any day could be the last day. Any day. Jesus could come back at any moment. I'm reminded the greatest, I think one of the greatest examples I know personally of a person who walked this out was, was my Uncle Rick. My Uncle Rick, he was a soul winner, y'all. He was a soul winner, just like God's called us to be soul winners. But some people just have a special just gift. I mean, he 
he, he led so many people to the Lord. He was the first one in my father's family that gave his life to Christ. And God used him to lead many people to him. But you, know, you want to know when God used him the most? God used my Uncle Rick the most after he was diagnosed with brain cancer. Because after he was diagnosed with brain cancer, the doctors told him, they said, you're only going to have a few months to live. We can give you surgery, and you're probably going to live for six to eight months. And without surgery, you'll probably live for two months. And he responded by saying, so you're telling me if I have surgery, I'm going to die? And if I don't have surgery, I'm going to die? And he responded by saying, I choose Jesus. I choose Jesus. And get this. Miraculously, he lived for 14 more years. And God used him. God used him to pray over people who had cancer and uncurable disease. And God would heal them. And God would work through him. And he, that, you know what his hobby was? His hobby was winning souls. In fact, you know what he would do many times? <laughs> he would walk out the door of the house, and he would tell his wife and family, he said, I'll be right back. I'm going fishing. But guess what? He had no rod. He had no net. He had no tackle box. He just had souls on his mind. He was thinking about Jesus, and he would go to the grocery stores. He would go to the restaurants. He would go to the parks, and the Spirit of God would use him to minister to people. And get this, 14 years, he led 14 pastors to the Lord that are still pastoring today. One of them being is my father right here. Why? Because... He lived every day like it was his last day. Many people are living for their resume, but they're not living for their eulogy. Oh, hello. We're just thinking about the here and now. As long as I'm taken care of, me, myself, and I, when God wants to use you. My Uncle Rick, he was not a preacher. He was not a pastor. He wasn't eloquent of speech, but God used him. God's not calling the qualified. He qualifies the called. You are a disciple. You are the church. You are the art. We are called to share the gospel, to spread the good news. You have the antidote. You have the solution. We have the hope in humanity for humanity, and it is the name of Jesus, the name that is above every other Man, come on, is anybody thankful for King Jesus? Come on, stand to your feet today. I love what Pastor CJ says. He says, it's time to unload hell and load up heaven. Let me tell you, it's time to unload hell and load up heaven. Here's my conclusion I want to leave you with. It's this. Choose to build and be the church every day until Christ returns. It's a decision. Choose to build and be the church every day until Christ returns. God wants to use you to win souls for him. And let me tell you how it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen by acting religious and legalistic and stuck up and high and mighty on the high horse. You think you're going to win people like that for the Lord? You know how it's going to be? 
through love, sharing your testimony, being a witness, being prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. There's so many, read the word of God, and, and more than that, allowing the Holy Spirit to work through you. Oh, because you do know God wants to see people saved just as much as you desire to see people saved. The Bible says it's not God's will for anyone to perish, but that all should come to repentance. And yes, there's a decision that a person has to make because God can't force someone. I love one-liners. I just got to say this one right here. Some people think, I got to see the salvation. I got to see it happen. Your job's not to see it. Your job's to seed it. You plant the seed. You sow. You throw it out. In the people's heart, that's between them and God. It may be hard. It may be thorny. The, the fowl of the air may take it. But every so often, you'll hit some good ground. And you pray for the condition of that person's heart. You say, God, may, may have an opportunity, God. See, come on, is anybody ready to win souls for Jesus today? What would happen? Because we can't take anything with us, but we will take the souls. Lord Jesus, I pray right now for every person under the sound of my voice. I thank you, Lord, that we are the church. We are the ark. We are the church of Jesus Christ, that you are coming back, Lord. And we thank you, Lord Jesus. We will see you face to face one day, God. But I thank you, Lord, for the anointing to win souls, to reach out to the lost, to be a witness in this dark world. God, we will not get so afraid and frantic. God, let us live like you rose yesterday and you're coming back tomorrow. Let us have that in our heart, knowing that you are real, that you are God, that you can save that you can deliver. So right now we just ask for divine appointments. We ask for you to set up the, the right connections, the, the right networks, the right relationships. Use us as people of influence. Use us as ambassadors to Christ to win our family, to win our homes, to win our coworkers, to win our friends, to, to win them to Jesus. So one day when we step into eternity, we can look at you and look around us and hear those words, well done, that good and faithful servant enter into the joy of the Lord. Come on, do we have any people in this place? Can we worship him in this place? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you liked what you heard, be sure to subscribe and share it with a friend. For more information about who we are, visit RiversideChurchTX.com.